I'll invite you to take your Bibles, if you would like this evening, and turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, we are still in a topical series, so we might be going a number of places this evening. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 5 is, as it were, home base uh, for our time together tonight. Understanding purpose. As we continue this series, our evenings have branched, as I said, mentioned, I've mentioned on a number of occasions, have branched beyond just topics as it relates to the immediate family and husbands and wives and such. And it's rested in, in broader society. And the reason why I've done this is we talked about biblical masculinity, then biblical femininity, uh, and then tonight purpose and next week liberty is because as we as fathers and as uh, we as families seek to navigate the world in which we are living, some of these elements that we're speaking of really come front and center as to what the family is intended to do, the way that family is intended to develop our young people so that we can uh, prepare them for excellence, as we've said in our child, uh, children's message, or uh, to, to uh, create a legacy of belief that will carry over with our children into the next generation, the next generation of the local church. And so many of the things I'm talking about in the evenings are things that children uh, will struggle with or, or uh, will, will not necessarily understand as they're growing and interacting with society around them and seeing perhaps from, from a Christian perspective, just how different others in society are and not necessarily understanding why. And I want to dig down to some of those things. So we talked about biblical masculinity and understand why masculinity is in such a crisis today, why uh, masculinity is being torn down by the world and, and how the world's concept even of masculinity itself is flawed and then helping our young men understand what it means to be a man and then transitioning to biblical femininity and understanding how biblical femininity femininity has been destroyed in our culture, um, how femininity as a whole has been uh, confused, and then seeing how we can help our young ladies to understand femininity at its root and truly what it means to be a woman for the Lord. And this evening we are going to talk about purpose. There's a crisis of meaning, a crisis of purpose in our culture today. One which has caused a tremendous imbalance in the lives of people all around, not just this country, but all around this world, and particularly the Western world. Uh, we would talk about Western culture in, in parts of Europe, in the United States, and Australia, and, and such. We see this imbalance most clearly in a couple of segments of daily lives. One of the easiest places to see this imbalance is social media. There's an entire generation of men and women whose happiness, contentment, self-worth, self-image are rooted in their social media personas. They spend their days looking for people to affirm them by liking their posts, by commenting on pictures. And they see this liking of a post, this comment of a picture as an actual affirmation of their worth. They see liking a post or commenting on a post as an activity worthy of their time to affect change. So that when somebody puts up a post that says, let's see if we can get enough likes to, to, to get someone's attention and people will like it and, and they'll get thousands upon thousands of likes as if somehow by liking a post they're actually doing something, though they're not. But they have this idea that there's purpose in that. There's meaning 
in that. They spend their days fighting with other people of different ideologies online, thinking that somehow that gives them some sort of purpose or meaning, some, some drive to continue. They centralize many of their interactions on these di- digital mediums. Some of them, many people in this culture today, might count among their better friends people that they've never even met in person. Society is only beginning to understand the effects of this on people. Nearly a decade after it began, social media is inherently self-focused. And anytime our minds focus upon ourselves heavily, naturally what happens is we're going to get into a bad place emotionally and spiritually. And as social media, the entire thrust of social media is self-focus. It is a poisonous medium that while it has has few but valid uses as a whole as we have seen society interact with it it has become a poisonous medium for interaction this has led people into a place where they live devoid of true meaning of life where their self-worth is entirely dependent on at best their own perception of themselves and more typically the way they believe other people perceive them to be Now, whether that's in social media or outside of social media, this is where a great deal of people find themselves today. They seek validation in the approval of others. And this is not new with social media, of course. Validation in conformity to trends or to fads, not new with social media. But in doing so, their purpose and the very essence of the meaning for their lives is rooted in things that are not just changeable, but that truly have no foundation. This void is then filled by something. And among lives devoid of meaning and purpose, the things that fill it often have no business being there. Among those in the jail, they have filled their lack of meaning and purpose with drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality. Among those who engage in more publicly acceptable methods. People will major on the minors, major public outcries over things that aren't really that big of a deal, mobilizing people and seeking to draw people towards common causes that are extremely minimal aspects of society and culture. And so when a dentist goes over to Africa and kills a lion, that lion's face has to be put up on the Empire State Building. That man's name has to be on the front page of every newspaper in the country. So when a child accidentally falls into a gorilla enclosure and they have to kill the gorilla to save the life of the child, that gorilla becomes a huge public outcry for the necessity of change in the way that we treat animals. In fact, the entire animal rights movement is a good picture of this problem, that people are so devoid of meaning and so lacking in the, in, in the, the foundational Uh, elements of purpose in their lives that they have to go out and they have to find purpose in obscure places and conjure up meaning where meaning and purpose are not really there in order to find something 
to, to cause them to feel. It's the same with the eco-movement. The elements of social fabric that create strong and meaningful lives while all of these things are going on are left to rot. While things which really don't matter because they're simple, accessible to all, have far too much weight and hold far too much sway in society. And this has contributed to a dramatic rise in this country of what is deemed mental illness. Depression, anxiety are on the rise, suicide particularly among the youth. And these things are to be expected as the unbelieving world seeks to adjust to the dramatic changes in social fabric that are being experienced through this digital revolution, through the rejection of the societal norms, through rejection of societal fabric, the norms of societal fabric such as family, such as church. You don't have community. You don't have family. You don't have church. As those social fabrics erode, there is nothing to replace them. The world is getting smaller and smaller as communication becomes instantaneous. News travels faster than anyone can process. And all of this has hit the, church, has hit the world very hard. But it need not be so in the church. One of the wonderful things about the church is that we rest upon a foundation that does not change. We rest upon a foundation, a book that was inspired over the course of, of many hundreds of years and compiled into a resource which for the last 2,000 years has been an anchor to God's people. As we have said in relation to nearly every element of life and society, the born-again believer, by virtue of our place in Christ, is compelled to be different from the world around us. We live for different priorities. Ones not only outside of ourselves, but outside of this temporal life in which we live. And this lends to the true church a consistency and a clarity in the midst of the chaos that this world is, has been living in. But we only experience the blessings of this consistency if we avoid the danger and not be swept away with it. Only if we succeed in living within the design and the purpose of God for our lives do we as born-again believers find this rest. So tonight we're going to set the record straight as it relates to our purpose. Understanding the constancy and the stability that we can have in a world where an increasing number of people are feeling entirely out of control and suffering the deep consequences of this physically, emotionally, and spiritually. There's a, a very large amount of the New Testament that speaks toward a believer's purpose. And simply put, if I were to just uh, finish up in, in a couple of minutes and just give you a couple of words that would, that would, would be the, the essence of our purpose, it would be to love God and to serve others. Now, this is not a shock, and this is everywhere in the New Testament. But where I'd like for us to go this evening as we establish this teaching is, as I told you at the beginning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians 1 through, 1 through 4, Paul has been speaking of his ministry towards the church of Corinth. In the first epistle to them, he was extremely firm in correcting any number of 
areas of, of um, sin, really, and of disobedience that the church was involved in. Errors and evils which they had been committing. In love, Paul corrected them. He sternly called them unto repentance. Now, 2 Corinthians is written in light of all that Paul had said in the first epistle to them. Their reaction when Paul corrected them was that they repented of their sin. They realigned themselves with Christ, and it is within this this reaction that Paul is writing. Much of the epistle is Paul speaking toward his ministry among them, confirming his love toward them, and defending his right by virtue of his apostolic authority to correct them in the manner that he did. Paul defended his authority, pointing to their own salvation, the church which Paul and his companions planted, and the work of the Spirit in their lives as proof that Paul was a man of honesty and that he used the Word of God in truth. And so he would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you, Word. So he says that simplicity, sincerity, and truth have been his calling card, have been the foundation of his ministry among them. He would go on to say in verse 17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Paul goes on to highlight the power of the Spirit and the superiority of the Spirit to any system of morality, to any system of legality, false doctrines, which these many of whom he had spoken in correction of in the first epistle to them, these false doctrines that he had corrected, he says they are false teachers and they are giving false doctrines, but we have not been so among you. And then he reiterates that it is this gospel through the power of the Spirit that Paul and his companions were determined to share, even when this meant suffering and shame and rejection. So Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-12, through 12, he'd say, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. This was the heart of Paul. This formed the essence of his purpose as a minister. That Paul, as a minister, invoked his own mindset. He says that we will be willing to die. We will live in persecution. We are putting ourselves out there in order that by God's grace you might live. In order that by God's grace you might receive the gospel. In order that by God's grace you might do what is right. And he calls for the church at Corinth to join him in this mindset. To see the purpose unto which we are called and to yield ourselves unto it with all our might. So Paul is speaking of his own motivations in 2 Corinthians 5 as it relates to his purpose. And as he does so, I believe we can draw from it many elements of our purpose as well. And so I'd like us to walk through several points this evening. Point number one uh, being found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, we 
have a higher purpose. We have a higher purpose. 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4 says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So Paul reflects unto us this confidence that as we labor, we do not labor for the things of this life, but for the things of the life which is to come. This higher purpose, it grounds us. It establishes our perspective as it relates to the events of this life. Our motivation for living is not rooted in the things of this life. It's not founded on the inconsistencies of human achievement. It's not found in the inconsistencies of personal contentment or of situational success or of the perception that others have of me. If these are the things unto which I'm building, on which I'm building, if these are the things that I am rooted in, if these are the things that matter most to me, if these are the things that can dictate how I'm feeling because these are the things that give me meaning or give me purpose, then I've built my life upon a foundation that is absolutely Wavering, inconsistent. Paul says, We know that if this earthly tabernacle, that would be our bodies, were to be dissolved, that there's something more, there's something greater, there's something higher. And we groan for this, we long for this. It isn't just that we know heaven is coming. It's that this makes us long for the day when the race is over. When, when heaven is achieved, we long for that day because we've been living for that day. We long for that day because that's the day that we've been aiming for. If everything that I do is not for today, but is for a future date, if, if I am planning a birthday party for my wife, and I am going out of my way to make all of the plans and, and, and to work very hard, and to uh, change schedules and to coordinate events and everything that I'm doing is pointed toward a particular day, all of my effort is pointed toward a particular event, then I am anxious for that event to come that I can see the fruit of my labor. And if all I have in this is, is this life, If all I have, as far as meaning is concerned, are these things that are built on no foundation, built on an unstable foundation, then when they disappear, so too do I. But we groan for that which we have not seen. We groan for something greater. Because we who are in Christ do not end when death meets us. Death is not the end for we who are in Christ. Death is not even a lateral move for we who are in Christ. The day our mortal life ends is the day that all of our weaknesses, all of our frailties, all of our vulnerabilities are utterly consumed in life eternal. And if our perspective is rooted in this biblical reality, it doesn't just change our confidence in our eternal outcome, but it changes the very fabric of my purpose on this earth. It changes what I live for. Why would I invest so much in the things of this life 
when they are but a shadow of a greater life to come? Why would I care so much about material advantage and disadvantage when there's coming a day when death will be swallowed up in victory? Why would I do anything but hold this life and the perceptions of this life and the cares of this life loosely if this life is but a staging ground for my eternal purpose? We have a higher calling. We have a higher purpose. We don't live for today. We live in light. We live today in light of the life that is to come. And it will be a glorious life. And so we understand that we have a higher purpose to living this life. That when our bodies are, uh, uh, when they fail us, when they are dissolved, this earthly tabernacle is dissolved, we have a heavenly we have a mortal body that will be swallowed up in life. A higher purpose, and that is life to come. Number two. First, we have a higher purpose. That was in verses 1 through 4. In verses 5 through 8, we have a confident purpose. We have a confident purpose. The Bible says this. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. So we have a higher purpose. God has given us something more to live for than just the temporal things of this life. Something more to live for than just who thinks that I'm uh, uh, capable or who thinks that I'm smart or who thinks that I'm good looking. Uh, something more to live for than test scores. Something more to live for than those temporal things. But we also have a confident purpose. As we look toward this eternity, we rest in the confidence that the Spirit of God being within us means that we have that home in heaven. The ministry of the Spirit of God in those that believe is severalfold. The Bible tells us that He convicts us of sin, John 16. The Bible tells us He assures us of a heavenly home. That's what we see here in 2 Corinthians 5. The Bible tells us He empowers us to overcome sin. We see that in Romans chapter 8. The Bible tells us He enables us for ministry. We see that even this morning in Romans chapter 12. Paul calls the Spirit of God here an earnest, literally a down payment. It's the same concept we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, speaking of the reality that, that the, the Spirit of God, the ministry of the Spirit of God within us is both our assurance of our heavenly home and then as we walk in the Spirit, it's a taste of heaven. As we walk in the Spirit and we bear the fruit of the Spirit, we get just the slightest glimmer, just the shadow of what heaven might be like, of our heavenly home, a taste of the joy that comes from serving the Lord, from being in the Lord's presence in the abiding sense, that is just the shadow of the joy and the peace and the contentment that we will understand one day, moment by moment, in Christ's presence. The Spirit of God gives us confidence that we have this purpose, that we aren't just making things up here. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But the Spirit of God, His ministry in our hearts, the joy that we feel when we're walking in the Spirit, the peace and contentment that comes over us as the Spirit of God ministers in our lives, the 
opportunity that we have to be filled with the Spirit unto empowerment for ministry, these things assure us that the purpose for which we are living is real, is founded. That it is they who live for themselves, it is they who live for pleasure, it is they who live for fame, it is they who only have hope in this life that are in fact empty of true purpose. And we who are the sons of God, we have a purpose that transcends just today. And this is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. This is where our confidence lies. This is also where our comfort lies. That you don't have to be a part of the rat race. That just because some find their purpose in physical beauty or fitness doesn't mean you have to play along with that game. That just because some find their purpose in politics, elevating the government as if it were God itself, almost, is what we're seeing today. And throwing everything that they have every moment of the day into activism doesn't mean you have to. Just because some find their purpose in money or in power or in fame or in building a legacy upon this earth doesn't mean you have to. And there's a pressure. There's a pressure upon us when others seem so driven for some earthly purpose to feel as though somehow we have failed. Because we don't have as much to show for our efforts as they do. And this is where faith comes in. This is where the confidence of the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts and ministering unto us comes in. Because it's when the Spirit of, of God fills us with the, and, and, and exercises the fruit of the Spirit within us to live out love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and patience. And as we see those things bubbling out of us, we say, yes, there's something more. Yes, I'm living for it. And yes... I have something to show for it. It's just not on this earth. It's just awaiting me in the heavenlies. That the Lord is returning and His rewards are with Him and those are mine. This is our assurance. And it frees us to live in the confidence of knowing that we can walk in a manner that is acceptable to God even though that's not going to be a manner that's going to be acceptable to society. Even though that's going to cause society to look, to look at you and think that you're ignorant or think that you're not driven or think that you don't get it, you get it. You've got something more. You don't need that for meaning. You don't need that for purpose. You don't need your life to be defined by those things which are superficial because your life is already, it already has fullness and definition in something so much deeper. So we have confidence. So, excuse me, we have first a higher purpose. Second, we saw in verses 5 through 8 that we have a confident purpose. Number three in verses 9 through 11, we have a fearful purpose. We have a fearful purpose. Verses 9 through 11, the Bible says this, Wherefore we labor that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. 
Our purpose in this life is motivated and driven by our heavenly home. But it is also driven by the condition unto which we want to be found when we arrive in our heavenly home. Paul says in verse 9 that we labor that whether present or absent from the body, we may be accepted of him. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 12, verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find doing. We labor in fear, knowing that every work of man will appear at the judgment seat of Christ. From the least to the greatest, every believer and every unbeliever will stand before the Lord in judgment for the things that he has done. And to this end, we are compelled by a holy fear that on the day we stand before God, we would have pleased him with the things that we have done in our bodies, so that whether in our bodies or absent from our bodies, we may be accepted of Him. And this fearful purpose should rest inside of us, that I am going to even forego elements of the priorities of this life, elements of the priorities of the rat race, if those things would seek to strip from me the energy or the ability to throw myself into the purpose of pleasing Christ. Because I know, fearfully know, that there's coming a day when we must all appear before the judgment seat. And then this fearful purpose compels us not just to live in a manner that is righteous, but it compels us to persuade men. It compels us to reach out to others, to call men to see that there is an eternity beyond this life, and to call them to come out of their purposes, those temporal purposes, those shallow purposes, those things that they think give their life meaning, and to see life as it truly exists. That what is our life? It is but a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. And so we fearfully, knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing that I must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I persuade you. Because you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I go out and I persuade others. Because they are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We seek to root their minds in this warning and this promise that we will all stand before the judgment seat. And we, we pursue this purpose because we believe it. It's been validated in our hearts. We have confidence in it through the Holy Spirit. We believe that it is true. We know that we have this purpose. We know that we have this eternity. And so we persuade men. And let me speak to this last point a little bit more candidly for a moment. There's a a real sorrow in my heart when I look at the current state of society. When I see a culture that has convinced the next generation that they are nothing but animals. They have no intrinsic purpose other than that they might be able to conjure one up in their minds. That purpose is only what they make it to be. And so we have a young generation that is adrift. That is adrift in meaninglessness. Because they say, well, I'm just an animal, so nothing really matters. I'm not anything special. A culture thus has found purpose in really one thing. Now, it's gone in any number of different ways, but what you've noticed is in the past decade in particular, our culture has found purpose in one thing and one thing alone, and that's conflict. What our culture has done is it has conjured up conflict even where no conflict exists. 
It is conjuring up victimhood where no victimhood exists because people find in victimhood purpose. And so we fight over politics and we fight over ideology and we fight over the environment and we fight over rights for people that already have them. And we have a society that fundamentally lacks purpose. And in that society, the highest class, the most important class are the victims. And so society is scrambling to be the most victimized. And so we have people with colored skin who are victimized and we have people uh, who, who uh, uh, have, have chosen some element of sexual perversion and they're victimized. And we have people that suffer from gender dysphoria and they are victimized. And so everything is about the victim classes. Everything is victimized. Women are victimized. Every, really, everyone but straight white men are victimized in this country, right? And, and we're not allowed to be victimized because we're at the top of the food chain of the hierarchy of victimizations. And so everything now is victimization. Everything is the haves and the have-nots. Everything is this polar uh, um, division, which, by the way, is, is it's not the first time this has happened in, 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 in history. It happened right before Russia fell to, became the USSR. It happened right before Soviet Russia. This idea that a class of people thrived on victimhood. It's happened any number of times in history. But what we are seeing here, this race to be the most victimized, it is forging a fake purpose that they are going to overcome the disadvantages of their victimization and that they are going to seek reparations for the victimized that those who have not been victimized are going to spend the rest of their lives apologizing and, and, and seeking reparations for those that other people like them have harmed in some nebulous way that we can't define. And those that are victimized are going to spend their lives hating, hating others for being the victims. And so there's conflict. And this is little more than an attempt to find some meaning in life Many of these people are just looking for a reason to get up in the morning and victimization gives it to them. And this is tragedy. This is a tragedy with real life consequences. And these can genuinely be quantified in the number of people. Suicide rates are, go are, are skyrocketing in this country. The number of people who are diagnosed with what's being called today mental illness the number of people living in deep depression and tremendous anxiety, not the only reasons for them, by any means. But more than just sorrow, more than us just seeing the tragedy, and, and more than us perhaps just becoming upset as we see the ignorant, what are often called depending on your circle, the useful idiots, those that are just being drawn down by these things, and then those that know exactly what they're doing and are drawing others into conflict in an attempt to manipulate them. Rather than allowing this to make us angry, it ought to make us sorrowful. But more than sorrow, it ought to well up within us a fearful concern for these men and women because they have missed it. And there's coming a day when the judge of all the earth will reckon with them. 
And this ought to drive our purpose to help others find theirs. That when you see these poor young people, and and it's not just young people today, and they are adrift on the oceans of meaninglessness, and they have no idea what life is about, and they have no idea why it matters, and they have no idea that, that man is made in the image of God and so has natural human dignity, and they have no idea that that gives them intrinsic value beyond just animals and beyond just plants and beyond just rocks. They have intrinsic deeper value because they're made in the image of God. When we help people understand that there's something more to life than just money or fame or power or the way others think of them or the way even they perceive themselves. Not only are we helping them, but we are freeing them through the gospel. In a world where purpose is often being found in anger and conflict and victimization. God has called us to find our purpose in love and compassion, submission to one another, and then to reach out to others knowing the terror of the Lord and persuade men to be set free. In a world of fear and sorrow and pain, we are called to be yielded, sacrificial, and joyful. Compelled to serve our Lord eager to please our Lord, fearfully persuading men. And this should make quite a difference among those with whom we interact. So number one, we have a higher purpose. Number two, we have a confident purpose. Number three, we have a fearful purpose. Number four this evening, we have a clear purpose. Verses 12 through 17, we have a clear purpose. The Bible says this, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not for, henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, Henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Our purpose then, the clarity of our purpose, which you saw in those those, uh, uh, highlighted verses, verses 14 and 15, that... He died for all, verse 15, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Our purpose is to live this life in the power of a changed life. We are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. That is our purpose, to live that way. That as our Lord has died for all, so he rose for those who would follow him into that death and into that life. That they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for us and rose again. Because if we are in Christ, we are new creatures. 
the old remnants of false purpose, those things which once drove us, those things which once kept us up at night, those things which once uh, uh, caused us so much uh, anxiety or fear uh, that, that compelled us with such motivation and such drive that if we didn't reach that status or if we didn't hit that goal or if we didn't do that thing, then somehow that means that we have failed. Those things have passed away. All things have become new. The remnants of false purpose, the remnants of conjured meaning, these things pass away. They are buried with him by baptism into death, and we are raised to walk in newness of life with a renewed purpose, with a different purpose, with a better purpose, with a clear purpose. Follow me, Christ would say on this earth. Follow me. And he meant it. And when we do it, not only does it transform our very lives, but it gives us every moment of every day. It endows it with purpose, genuine purpose, a purpose which does not fade with time, a purpose which extends beyond even the reach of death itself, a purpose with, which validates its own existence and validates my existence every moment that I'm living it. Every moment that I live in the power of Christ, every moment that I live as a new creation in Christ, every moment that I live submitted to the Spirit of God is a moment that has already validated its own existence. So we read in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die... We are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul would write, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, alive or dead, we should live together with Him. Christ died for us, whether living in this life or whether veiled in eternity. We can, and indeed it is our very purpose to live moment by moment in the life and light of His glorious presence through His power to the praise of the glory of His grace. And indeed, this is the direction that Paul goes next, our fifth and final point. First, we saw our heavenly purpose. Second, we saw our confident purpose. Third, we saw our fearful purpose. Fourth, we saw our clear focus, our clear purpose. And fifth and finally, we follow Christ's purpose. This is what we do. We follow Christ's purpose. Verses 18 through 21 in 2 Corinthians 5. We continue. The Bible says, And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, 
who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul calls himself an ambassador for Christ, that the church himself, and that he became a minister of the reconciliation, called to reconcile others to God. And he calls for the church here to be reconciled to God, calling them to see the purpose that the life of Christ might bring about in them righteousness unto holiness and cause them to live on this plane of joy. Endow them with meaning for their lives. This is why Christ was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We all know how very complicated life can be. The interaction among humans, emotions, human desires has in every generation produced any number of both positive and negative outcomes. Every man or woman longs to live in, with purpose, to live their lives with meaning, to know that their time on the earth meant something. And this is, a, this, this is instilled into us. This is not something uh, that is unique. Every man wants to know that their time meant something. But the question is, what standard, by what standard does a man judge whether or not his life meant something? What a man believes might be his legacy, history might call his infamy. What a man might devote himself unto as a means of justifying his very existence could in a moment come crashing down. A man spends his entire youth training to win a world record and he wins that world record only to have it surpassed in a decade. And everything that he trained so hard for, he's now number two on the list. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, these men who dedicated their lives and nearly gave their lives for this country are now, the history books are rewriting them as infamous men for being slaveholders. And now these men who were once heroes, a large portion of this country sees as villains. What might at one time be a man's legacy can just as easily be gone. But what if, what if our purpose was on a higher plane? What if we could be heirs to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that cannot fade away? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. This is the call of Christ. This is what we do as we walk in Christ's purpose. See, for the last 2,000 years, the legacy of Jesus Christ depending on who you talk to, is one of salvation or it's one of infamy. But in the heavens, there's no debate about the legacy of Jesus Christ. In the heavens, what Jesus did is indelible. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not going away no matter what the history books write about Jesus. And it is Christ's words as He walked upon this earth that I would like us to end with this evening.
as we seek to establish in our own hearts our reason to be, the thing that ought to exist beyond the temporal and beyond the physical and beyond the material. Christ's words in Matthew 6 speak directly to this concern. And let's allow them to, to be translated into a concept of purpose and of meaning as we close this evening. In Matthew 6, 19-21, Jesus wrote these words, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Paul called himself an ambassador for Christ that the church itself might be reconciled unto God. We see Paul rooting his purpose in the heavenly purposes of living in a manner that pleases God and then persuading men to do the same. If we can wrap our minds around this truth, you will find meaning that society can't touch. You will find meaning well beyond the shallow nature of conflict, the shallow nature of, of, of the pursuits of, of self-validation. You'll find meaning in the heavenlies and you'll have confidence in it because the Spirit of God will commend it to your hearts. Let's lay not up for ourselves treasures on earth, whether that be the material, as Jesus is speaking of directly here, or even the legacy. If someone wants to create a legacy in our name on this earth, that's all well and good. But the legacy that matters is the one that's being forged in the heavenlies. It's ours. If this body is dissolved, we have a heavenly tabernacle that cannot be touched by the things of this world. And that's what we're called to live for as we follow Christ. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.